That was great, Amanda. <laughs> Alison. Before I start, it's like tradition for me to have a drink first. I hope this is mine. Thank you, Charlie. Naomi likes to, to come. She looks very embarrassed now. This is my daughter, in case you don't know. <laughs> and um, she's been wanting to know what we're talking about and to listen to it. But I haven't let you, have I? I haven't let you listen to what, what we're going to be talking about. So you're wondering what it's going to be about, wasn't you? So now, now's an opportunity to find out. But I'm afraid, um, as we look at Judges chapter 3, verses 7 to 31... I need to offer a health warning um, because some of these verses, if you've seen, are um, quite gory. Um, I think maybe they might have more than a, a U or a PG certificate, maybe. Um, but I'll try not to make it too gory for you. I see these verses like broccoli and carrots on a child's plate. The child might say, oh, why are they there? But any parent knows that they are good for you and they can help you grow. These verses that we're looking at today are like that, full of good stuff to help us grow and see a bit more clearly God's character. Even if it's a bit unpalatable for modern day ears. So we're in Judges. These are people of God called by him to bring peace to the nation of Israel. There are 12 in all, and I've got the privilege of bringing the first three to you, um, which you can see behind me as I turn this on. And we will look at the first three tonight. Othanol, Ehud, and Shamgar. But you'll notice of each judge, it's a bit like Groundhog Day. Have you ever seen the film by that name? where Bill Murray plays Phil, the weatherman. It keeps having the same day after day after day. But the question that we need to ask, did, why did the people of God need judges? God had been with his people through Joshua, and the people had promised to serve the Lord with their whole hearts. And we can see that in Joshua 24, verse 24. And the people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God and obey him. But time passed and the promises were forgotten after the death of Joshua. And we'll come kind of find out that once one of the leaders dies, things seem to go not so well. Come with me to Judges 2.10. They won't be up there. You'll have to listen to my voice, I'm afraid. After the, after the whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the law nor what he had done for Israel. Then in verse 11, the imaginable, unimaginable happened. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. 
How could they worship the gods of their enemies around them? God in his righteous anger handed them over to the raiders who plundered them. But they were not just plundered of their belongings, but they were sold to their enemies so they could not resist. The Lord took his hand away from them. So whenever they went into battle, they were defeated. The Israelites were in great distress and cried out to the Lord in his mercy and in his mercy and compassion heard his people's cries and he sent them the saviour judges. What amazing God these Israelites have. How could they ever not worship him with all their hearts? But then it's Groundhog Day again. So let me introduce you to the first judge, Othniel. And something I must tell you about these slides is that Naomi put all these slides together. She's even more embarrassed now. <laughs> and Naomi did them in minutes. It took me hours normally to put them together. So this is Othniel. Othniel had good pedigree as the younger brother of Caleb. And unlike some of the other judges, he pointed to the Lord with great character. Othniel was raised up by God and was empowered by God's spirit. He followed God's ways and rescued Israel from the Mesopotamian king, Kushran Rishathim, who had made the Israelites serve him for eight long years. Those eight years must have felt like such a long time but they were soon forgotten. So Israel enjoyed 40 years of peace. But then Othniel died. Do you know what really struck me about this story of Othniel? Why did it take eight long years for the people to cry out to God? If they'd done it sooner, wouldn't have God responded straight away? challenge for us today is are we in a situation like this with God? God desires us for him to cry out to him. So don't put off today crying out to God. Don't let it be eight years or even 18 years as it did for the Israelites before God sent their second judge, Ehud. Now, where the count of Ehud, where the count of Othniel is formal and a little personal information, the story of Ehud is told in almost comic style and lots of small details, perhaps designed to amuse as well as to encourage the Israelites who heard it and those who listened to it, like us. So let me tell you of Ehud, the left-handed judge or Ehud the lefty. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Because of their evil, God handed them over to Eglon, king of the Moabites. With the help of the Amorites and the Amalekites, the Moabites overpowered the Israelites at the city of Palms. And the Israelites were subject to King Eglon for 18 long years. 
a long time, isn't it? 18 years to be under the rule of someone else. At last, after 18 long years. Israelites cried out to the Lord, and God sent, you had the Benjamites. And if you know anything about Benjamites, it would fill you with great hope. Because Jacob blessed Benjamin, who obviously was the first of the Benjamites, And his offspring were these words from Genesis 49, verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours his prey. In the evening he divides the plunder. These words convey the speed at which he would defeat his foes. But there was one problem he had. He was left-handed, but not by choice, but because of the formity to his right hand. But it's amazing how God can use our weaknesses to do great things. Maybe we have weaknesses, what we think God can't use. Don't be surprised if God uses them, if you let him. Ehad had a double-edged sword, which is about a foot and a half long in our measurements. And he strapped it to his right thigh under his clothing. All the Israelites went to present a tribute to King Eglon. He was a rather, he was a rather larger than life man. He was fat, as the Bible says, but very powerful. Yeah, it seems to chicken out as he leaves the king, but as he nears the idols of Gilgal maybe he saw the idols we don't really know and thought of his God who is serving and he turned around maybe he had a change of heart and he comes to the king he asks to speak to him in secret I have a secret secret message for you O king There's something about a secret message, isn't there, really? We want to know. It's something that we don't know, we want to know. The intrigue. Not just knowing us draws us in. It consumes us. We must know. Reason goes out of the window. So Eglon sends all his attendants away. So it's Ehud and Eglon all alone. As quick as a flash, as the king stands to hear the secret message, Ehud plunges his sword straight into the king's belly. It went in so far, the handle disappeared into the huge belly and came out of his back, the tip. While the king dies, Ehud makes a quick escape, locking the door behind him. After he'd gone, the servants came and found the doors were locked. Amazingly, like a comedy sketch, they do not end to think he must be on the toilet. What must have seemed like hours to the servants, they enter to find the king fallen to the floor, dead. In confusion, Ehud escapes the hill country of Ephraim and mustered together the warriors of Israel, captured the fords of the Jordan, 
prevent the Moabites from escaping. And 10,000 Moabites were struck down that day. I think it says strong and vigorous. So obviously they were very big and very powerful Moabites. But the Israelites struck them down. Not a man escaped. Moab was subject to Israel and there was peace for 80 years. It kind of tells you a bit about just a little table that Naomi did. The judge, the oppressing king, and the time of captivity. And we did try to get in at the end um, how many years um, there was peace, but we couldn't work out how to do that. We ran out of space, didn't we? Then we're introduced to Shambhal, son of Anath. And he struck down 600 Philistines with an axe code, or known as a cattle prod, I think, with a sharp end. doesn't really have a sharp end in that picture, but I've seen pictures of uh, what it looks like, and it's kind of a bit like a spear on the end. We have no more details about Shamgar apart from he saved Israel. And it brings up an interesting thought, really. There's a possibility he was not an Israelite, but used powerfully by God to bring peace to God's people. So what can we learn from today's... today's circle of... So what can we learn today from the circle of events which happened to Israel? There are five elements to this circle. And these are the five elements that we've been looking at. So sin, Israel turned to Baal and worshipped worship and immorality. Servitude, foreign nations defeat oppressed Israel. Supplication, under oppression Israel confessed sin and praise. Salvation, God rises up judges to deliver his people and silence. During his life, the judges kept Israel more or less faithful to the Lord. So I'd like us to look at these four different things. Uh, Leave it blank. Our cycle of events. So I mentioned the the first cycle and tell you what it is, it's sin and then I'll lead you through as we look at this just like the Israelites we all fall into sin, it's part of the human condition just like Adam and Eve we give in to our evil desires rather than God's perfect ways maybe we think without sin that we've never done anything wrong If you've been a Christian for many years, or probably even just a few years, you might think this comment is absurd. And yes, it is. But we can set our standard of right and wrong by our own standards. If we're comfortable with it, then surely it can't be wrong. The problem is our morality level is a bit faulty. And gradually we have come accustomed to substandard level. Let me tell you a true story about my DIY 
expertise or lack of it. I'd moved into a bedsit when I was in my teens, maybe early 20s. It's hard to remember that far back. And the owner kindly said that I could paint the room in radiant white colour. It looked amazing. Some would say perfect. I put pictures up to make the room look really homely. Over time, the walls became dirty and dirtier, but I didn't realise until I moved out and took my pictures down. And I saw I had become accustomed to those dirty walls. We need to remind ourselves of our sin and reset God's standard in our lives regularly and repaint our hearts with God's ways. And the second element is servitude. How long would you live with something wrong in your lives? The Israelites lived for 8, 18 years with something wrong in their lives. Imagine you've worked with someone for 15 years. You lived in the same village and you share a van as you deliver post together. You used to travel to work, but one day, as a driver, felt taken advantage of. As a pastor, had never said a thank you or even bought him a present, never even given him a bottle of scotch that he got from another customer to say thank you. So the driver talks to the passenger about what's on his heart and there's a big disagreement and there's silence for the rest of the day. Again and again the driver tries to regain the relationship reminding the passenger of the good times they had had before. But it goes on deaf ears. Soon the ex-passenger walks miles to work to avoid the driver and saying sorry for taking advantage of him. Maybe you've been in that situation with God. You were once a team. You worked well together, but you avoid talking about what happened. God is always there. You see him every day. He yearns yearns for you to come to him with an open heart to restore that broken relationship that you caused by turning your back on him and pursuing your own desires. Years pass and the blockage between you and God deepens. God still has his heart open to you, but you become less and less responsive to his call for intimacy until you become embedded in your sin. Maybe you come to a point when you cry out to God like the Israelites do because you feel oppressed. And God's amazing grace, he responds to us crying out to him like your child or loved one, having been away for a long time or on a holiday with such excitement, almost like the prodigal son returning to the father that he ran undignified, undignified, wrapped his arms around him, put the robe on him, healed a fattened calf, 
There's such excitement. Let's look in a little bit more detail about what it means to cry out to God. Maybe we've never cried out to God. In this book I was reading, this was a two-line statement about crying out to God. Crying out to God is an act of desperation and total concentration. It is like a fervent expression of faith in God and trust in his goodness and power to act on our behalf. And crying out to God expresses these following traits. I'll leave you a few moments to just read those six different traits of crying out to God and I'll put the Bible verses with them to kind of highlight those traits. And I'll fill you in with a little information briefly on each one. Genuine humility. It's hard for people to admit that they cannot solve a problem or overcome an obstacle. But it's true we need God's help. He delights in a broken and contrite heart that humbly seeks his aid. Unconditional surrender. When a situation becomes so desperate that only God can deliver. A cry represents total, unconditional surrender. Don't try to bargain with God. Leave your life in his hands. Plea for mercy. Apart from Christ, we have no value that merits God's favour. When driven to a point of despair or destruction, your unworthiness before God often becomes more apparent. And it can be motivate you to cry out to Him for mercy. And personal helplessness. Do you believe that you need God's help when only the really hard with the really hard things? Normally that's when we just cry out to God, isn't it? When things that we can't cope with in our own strength. But Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. Faith in God and and power faith in God's power and resources. Your cry to God acknowledges acknowledges God's ability to do what no one else can do. During the storm of the Sea of Galilee, the disciples acknowledged Jesus' power to rescue them when they cried out, Lord, save us, we perish. And finally, desperation. Cry out to God in an admission of one's need for God. The psalmist declared, in my distress... I call upon the Lord. I cry out to my God. He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry came before him even into his ears. There are many reasons why we might cry out to God as we've seen. From desperation to distress. From realisation that we're without hope 
in our own strength to realising that God is the only one who can answer our desperate pleas. So back to the fourth cycle. This is my favourite-ish cycle because the last one is to come. Salvation. The Israelites are rescued by God when they cried out, weren't they? Through being sent judges who became their saviour, conquering their enemies. But these salvations were always short-lived. When they died, it all fell apart. So what was all this pointing to? They needed a once and for all saviour who would deliver his people for all eternity. All these judges are pointing to Jesus Christ, our one and only saviour. Do you know this Jesus? Who came from heaven being co-eternal with his heavenly father, descended to earth as a baby, born in a manger, lived a perfect sinless life and died and rose after three days. Wait a minute, what do you mean he died? Yes, he must die so that we might live. But he is God, yes but he must die so that we may have life. He did all this so you and me can know God's amazing love for us. So we can be rescued by this perfect judge who is our true salvation. And the final cycle is silence. Have you ever heard the saying, silence is golden? Well, when it lasts. And it didn't for the Israelites because the silence they, they encountered when the, a judge died or their peace that they had stopped, didn't it? But we, have a, we encounter an eternal silence from our enemies because of Judge Jesus that will last forever. And as I finish, some questions to take away and think about. They're very challenging questions. Do we live with that eternal hope in our hearts? Are we living in the light of eternity each day. Jesus has saved us, redeemed us, and set us free from all sin's shame. He gives us silence from our enemies forever. Amen.